Welcome to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. I'm a professor, OD consultant, and change strategist, helping individuals and organizations experience life to the fullest and engaging in positive transformational change. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. Today, I'm visiting with a longtime friend and colleague, Matt Minahan. Um, coming to us from outside the uh, Beltway area. So, Matt, how, how are things for you these days? Fortunately, healthy, safe, virus-free, and uh, able to live here in the Annapolis area uh, in a community where people wear masks and take social distancing seriously. So, um, uh, doing great uh, and uh, uh, exploring ways to convert what we normally do face-to-face -face, uh, into this online Zoom uh, world and uh, mostly with a, with a lot of success. Yeah, talk, talk a little bit about that because I know um, a key part of, of, of your background and, and your teaching and your consulting work is very much all relationship-based and um, all, you know, really grounded in strong interpersonal skills and, and the idea of use of self. So talk a little bit about how that is occurring in this in this new online world. So um, I've taught uh, two university courses, two grad school courses, uh, online since the um, pandemic started. I was in a three-day tea group, which is a, kind of an intense interpersonal interaction group, which we did on Zoom, and I'm coaching a senior executive uh, via Zoom and uh, finding that there are differences, but uh, we're getting a lot of the same stuff done. Um, yeah, what we're not doing is we're not having long lunches. We're not, uh, we don't have time for informal gatherings. My teaching, a lot of what we do, as you know, uh, Jim, and teaching is we chat with students offline. We visit with them in office hours on the phone. We um, see them in the hallway. Uh, we see them during breaks and uh, none of that's possible now. So accommodating for that uh, has been a bit of a challenge, but uh, I'm finding that most of what we have gotten done in a face-to-face -face environment, we can actually get done uh, on this uh, virus-driven uh, Zoom environment. What, um, do you see some, um, some new things that are occurring in, in, that, in that switch or some, some yes, new possibilities? Uh, Yes, I, um, uh, I'm a member of a, uh, a learning institute called NTL, National Training Labs uh, Institute. And uh, one of our OD programs, which used to be four days residential, um, we've restructured into 28 90-minute Zoom sessions uh, and six or eight pre-recorded sessions. And so once we start thinking creatively about what the medium can do, um, it generates all kinds of new possibilities for us, and, uh, and I think we're on the verge of that. It, there's a downside. You know, there are relationships, there are um, interactions that just we have to give up uh, in this environment. But um, uh, there's so much more we can accomplish, and our reach is, is, is much greater, too. So, uh, you know, we can... Uh, uh, include many more people doing many more things um, by using this uh, technology. 
how are you seeing some of your students or clients and maybe more so your clients um are they embracing some of the changes or are they resisting the change you know we talk a lot about resistance to change yeah in od how is how is that playing out um I'll turn the phone off um it's um the, our clients are having to run their businesses this way anyway so it's not as if we are um uh you know uh, introducing something brand new to them we are kind of getting into the stream with which they've got to run their businesses anyway so accommodating this other new um uh approach um this other new methodology this other new way of doing things um is uh, just part of doing business for most of our organizations yeah it reminds me of uh I had a, years ago, I saw a stack of post-it notes on a colleague's desk and it said, I can because I have to. <laughs> so I'm wondering with the, with the, you know, the pandemic and the, and the changes that it's brought about, if there's a different sense, it's not really a choice. I mean, it's, it's not, right. it's not change that people are choosing. It's kind of being thrust upon people. So I wonder how that changes the dynamic. And then I wonder too, if what the longer term impact will be, like how much, how much some of, some of the changes will will stick around as things uh, open back up, and what you know what will remain, what will what will have shifted? Things are going to be different and quite different for a long time. I mean, the travel industry, the hospitality industry, commercial real estate is going to be greatly affected because a lot of these companies are going to see that we don't need all this office footprint. Uh, we can do this with a much smaller footprint. Um, public events, uh, movie theaters, plays, uh, arts events, those kinds of things are going to be affected for a long time. It's going to be a year or two into 2022 or beyond before we really have enough virus protection uh, through inoculation and herd immunity. So, um, and I just don't see the travel industry, particularly business travel, uh, reverting to the way it's been previously um, uh, anytime soon. Yeah, I remember uh, several years ago, um, my uh, older sister who was in the PR field, um, that her, her job, this was years ago when video conferencing was first starting, um, they, they said, well, you're not going to have to travel near as much to the parent company out in California. She was in Dallas mm -hmm. because you can do video conferencing. So she's like, oh, great. I won't be traveling out to Dallas, you know, twice a month. Right. What she found was she still traveled out there twice a month, but she just had twice as many meetings because <laughs> the other ones were added by video conferencing. So, um, so I'm wondering, you know, what that um, what that will look like. But I think that a lot of organizations are certainly realizing um, the some of the, the the benefits of the the virtual um, office space. Um, this the um, I haven't really heard much talk about it, but I think it's um, really interesting in terms of the, the 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 amount of traffic that's been lessened in a lot of areas, which has decreased pollution, and you know you see vis the visibility in some of the cities around the, the world has just been it's been really amazing to the contrast of the before and after. It has, um, and I'm pleased that those kinds of um, uh, elements, those kinds of factors are starting to show up now. Um, 
and I'm pleased that we're paying attention to the disparate impact uh, of people, particularly uh, people who are brown and black and people in poverty um, as a result of this. But um, there's a parallel um, driver that I think needs as much, if not more, of our attention, and that's climate change. And unless we take these both together and deal with and then the third piece is kind of institutional racism. And I think we've got these three things that are coming together. I'm afraid you know, we've taken our eye off climate change and hoping that uh, uh, after this election, we somehow get more serious about that in addition to what we've been talking about here. But um, these, um, you know, these events, uh, particularly around racism and particularly around the virus are exposing some terrible features of our society that um, particularly us white people, particularly us white American men uh, have been oblivious to while the rest of the world and the rest of the people in our country uh, have been experiencing this on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, but, but beyond our awareness. Yeah, it's, it's like as, as a middle-aged middle white male, it's like we're I include myself, am waking up to the reality that other people have been living a long time. And yes. It's been kind of um, masked or just, you know, I've been insulated from it just from um, the, the advantages that I have. And, and just No, that's right. The privilege that we have as educated, uh, well-educated, overly well-educated uh, <laughs> white American men um, uh, so distances us from the, the reality of the rest of our population here in the U.S. and particularly beyond. I mean, you and I both done a lot of international travel, particularly in the development realm and where we've been trying to help bring um, uh, poor communities uh, some, some development and help them um, create sustainable ways to improve uh, life for themselves. Uh, and uh, as soon as you venture into that realm, uh, boy, it's just impossible to hold on to our white blindness and, uh, and ignore the reality that the rest of the world is facing, and, and, and particularly here in the US where it's now we, we can't avoid it. Yeah, I, ha I had a, uh, one of those huge wake up moments about 10 years ago when I did a, a volunteer trip on the Pine Ridge Reservation up in, in South Dakota. And I just, it, it, yeah, it, it was hard for the next few months because I was just like, how did I not see this? How have I been a part of this? It's happening in my backyard. And I just, I started doing a lot of more reading about it and just, I'm like, wow, there's, if there's so much that I don't know, what else do, don't I not know? Um, what other biases do I have? Um, you know, my blind spots and um, yeah. And I think that the things that we're seeing going on now globally have not been recently created. They've just been recently exposed. That is correct. And, and you know, you, you bring this back to change. Um, nobody changes because they want change. People change because they feel pain somewhere. Pain, a physical pain, an emotional pain, a psychological pain. Um, and uh, fortunately, this confluence of events, 136,000 deaths in is bringing a level of pain to us um, that is hard to escape. 
watching these uh, glaciers in the Arctic calve and the sea level rise. And uh, just in the last 10 years here in Annapolis, we've had an increase of two to three days per year to 18 to 20 days per year of flooding in downtown Annapolis. And uh, that's from sea level rise from climate change. And uh, I'm hoping we're not too late getting to the climate change issues. I'm hoping we're not too late getting to the race issues. Um, and, uh, and we are already too late getting to the virus issues. But, uh, but uh, you know, uh, one of the uh, axioms about human beings is uh, we're always willing to do the right thing after we've exhausted all other choices here. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that was a Winston Churchill quote. Wasn't I think it? that's right. Just, yeah. He had it. He had it in a somewhat different context, but uh, yeah, yeah, was that, that's way the case. Yeah, he said that about Americans will always do the right thing after they've exhausted all their other options. Yes, exactly. So, so I mean, I, so so I I mean I see this as uh, as um, pivotal a time as uh, uh, I'm not, not finding the right word as tumultuous a time as 1967, 68, 69 was uh, in this country. The issues are different. There's no Vietnam War here. Uh, we don't have a big generational divide uh, the way we had then. But um, that was a liminal period which set the table for the changes that were gonna happen in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And I'm hopeful, just as 1931 uh, and 32, 29, 30, 31, 32, were a liminal period that set the changes that uh, were to take place starting uh, with the election of Roosevelt and, uh, and all the progressive legislation that got uh, passed uh, between 32 and 1940. Um, yeah, and that took, the, that took the whole stock market and the economy collapsed to, correct. for that wake-up call. Correct. So um, I, I hope the, we, don't, we don't need our whole economy to collapse. I hope we don't need 25% unemployment for, for three or four or five years. I'm hoping we don't need a famine in the dust bowl as we had here in uh, the 1930s. I'm hoping, particularly where you are now, uh, I'm hoping we don't need to assassinate three key leaders in one year, the way we did in 1968, uh, to get uh, and, and burn cities uh, in order to get our attention. I'm hoping that we're smarter and wiser now and that we are responding better to uh, these external influences um, than we have been in the past. I'd, 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 I'm a basic optimist and I'd like to believe that we are, um, we have learned from our mistakes. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we have learned from some of them. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, I, I think we're, we're slowly learning from them. I hope that, that the, the real learning and the action happens before um, too much more damage is done. And, and it is interesting too, I think that I like how you kind of phrased it, that those, those different global um, challenges are not isolated. They're not unrelated. No, they're, right. they're all interconnected. And, and if they're interconnected, then we need to address them in an interconnected way. And so I think a lot of times we tend to like to do things piecemeal. And right. so, um, well, and that's, that's another thing about change and particularly uh, leading organizational change. 
uh, is that uh, what differentiates change agents from other people or change specialists or organization development specialists is that we try to maintain a systems view. We try to see the system as a whole. And if you see the systemic view of what's happening in this, not, not just in this country, but in the world, if you see the systemic view and you talk about the three things we talked about, we talk about climate change, racism, the virus, and then you add this kind of uh, orientation toward authoritarianism, um, what we're seeing here is happening all around the world. And when you see it systemically, you see how they, they, these themes intersect. And right now, they're inter what, the evidence of their intersection is showing up around people of color, uh, people who are brown and black, uh, Native Americans, um, uh, people in poverty, uh, immigrants. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we pay attention to the signals the system is sending, and we can keep a systemic perspective on all of it, uh, then we can benefit from dealing with all of it uh, in a unified way. Yeah, the, uh, those, those different, um, the, the, the age of denial and the, the, the isolationist views um, are really detrimental to, uh, to our future. No, that's right. And, uh, um, you know, you see the rise of authoritarianism here uh, and in Poland now, just their recent election, and, uh, Brazil and uh, the Philippines. The world is starting to look a lot the way I think uh, Vladimir Putin would like it to look. Uh, and uh, I think our best hope uh, for defeating that is to uh, return to the kind of uh, plural, pluralism um, uh, and liberalism, small l liberalism, liberal democracy that this country has been known for. And uh, if we're able to do that and take our place on the world stage again and become the, uh, the guiding light, not the lagging light that we've become, uh, engaging the world on economics, engaging the world on trade, rather than a bunch of bilateral deals that, uh, that don't, ha don't have a systemic perspective. Uh, then uh, my hope is that uh, we can start to have influence uh, on some of these larger trends toward climate and authoritarianism and, and response to the virus and, uh, and, and racism. Yeah, and it's, it's like a, um, I'm lost for an analogy, but uh, when things happen so slowly, it's kind of like the the frog in the boiling water. That that's correct. That it's it's it, we need a wake up call, and maybe that's what's occurring. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we hope that the wake up call is not too late. Um, and well, we on, on climate, boy, we are knocking on late. We are minutes away from late on climate. Uh, on race, I, we've been given a huge gift by uh, these smart young people of all races who are just demanding that we do a better job and that we eliminate the institutional racism that is a built-in bias uh, in our work uh, and in our country and in our political institutions. Um, so, uh, and that's the gift of the virus. I mean, it's a huge cost. It's not a free good at all, but the gift of the virus is that combined with the 
the George Floyd activism and the Black Lives Matter activism, we're starting to see in ways that we, upper middle class, middle class white Americans have been able to deny uh, some of the consequences of this behavior. And uh, I think, this, uh, as I said, I'm very excited about what 2021 is gonna be like, uh, 2021 and beyond. Yeah, I think it's going to be painful getting there, but I think the the longer term view, I think is, I'm yeah. very encouraged yeah. by uh, by the things that I see, and and like you mentioned, the the activism of our our young people is very encouraging. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I've um, somebody made the comment that um, that most most change at some point requires those in power to step up. Correct. And uh, and you're seeing that with um, just um, the the number of of young white people that are um, showing up at the protests and um, and it's not just a um, a people of color movement it is a it's a human rights movement that um, that a whole generation is is embracing. The signature line on my emails right now is freedom is never granted it is won. Justice is never given, it is exacted. Uh, from African-American civil rights campaigner, uh, A. Philip Randolph. And I think uh, we're in that moment where, um, you know, we're in that moment where the fight is on. And, uh, and, I, and I say fight advisedly, because I don't like to use warlike or pugilistic terms. But, uh, but this is a fight against the status quo. Um, and, and I'll just add one other thing here. If I had one lever to pull that I think would fix most of the ills in this country, public funding of political campaigns um, would be it. Because it would reduce the influence of lobbyists, it would reduce the influence of corporations, it would return the vote to the grassroots, and every pharma company and every oil company wouldn't own its 40 or 50 Congress people. Um, but that's a fight. And so we have to fight against the status quo in order to bring the kind of social justice, the kind of uh, equality to all people that uh, I think our founding fathers had in mind. Nobody amongst the founding fathers figured that there would be a 782 times uh, difference between the pay of a CEO and the pay of an average worker. And yeah, that's, it wasn't wasn't in the cards. No, that's that's unfathomable and and it's unconscious unconscionable. Correct. It's, yeah, I think that one number right there sums up a lot. Yeah. Well, Matt, this has been fun catching up. I I miss our interactions at the uh, the Org Development Network. Um, conference, and I remember the, uh, the the good old days when when the different program directors we were meeting two and three times a year. Correct. And uh, yeah, we would meet in the fall and and in the spring, and sometimes then in, in the in the winter time. And so um, I know that those days probably won't come back travel wise, but um, hope hopefully we can uh, do some more of these um, uh, chats just over Zoom. And so I always. I'm always inspired by your by your passion and your insights, and so um, I, I I cherish our friendship. So, 
Me, me too, Jim. It's so, so great catching up after too long a time. I think your students uh, are, uh, are hugely privileged to have you uh, working with them. This podcast idea is a great one. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the university has a huge asset in, in you. And um, I wish you all the best. Uh, and particularly, as one of my friends says, stay negative. <laughs> I love about, it. About, about the regarding the virus. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Matt. Be well, Jim. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Take care. Yep. See you now. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. If you want to connect more, you can follow me on Twitter. Instagram, or Facebook, and at my website, drjimmaddox.com. Thanks for listening.